Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 114. We'll turn there in a moment over to Psalm 114. But first, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Verse, or 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven, if indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us For this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim whether present or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. For we are well known to God, and I also trust, are well known in your consciences. Amen. The Apostle Paul addresses us with a metaphor and says, we are currently inhabiting a tent. Now, if you guys have ever been camping, some of you are big-time camping fans. A tent is not something you want to live in long-term. It's a temporary residence. It's something you want to give up and replace. And he says that that's actually how we kind of feel with our bodies, isn't it? Did some of you notice as he's going through and he says, while we're dwelling in this temporary tent, we increasingly over time find ourselves groaning. How many of you groaned when you got out of bed this morning? How many of you groaned when you like tripped and fell and were like, why couldn't I catch myself? I was stunned this last summer when I go crashing off my bike and it takes me over a month to recover. It didn't take me a month 10 years ago. What's going on? We are groaning in this tent that is insufficient for eternal life. And yet, Paul reminds us of this extraordinary comfort. That as we, as the Puritans used to call it, grow world-weary and tired of living in this body and tired of living in this planet, that is to awaken in us the hope and reality that we won't live here always. There is a home in heaven for us. With that hope, 
in mind, turn back to Psalm 114. Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 114. We're going in series through these Egyptian Hallels, Psalms 113 through 118, which were written to praise God. That's that word, Hallel. It's the first part of Hallelujah. So praise the Lord. These are the Egyptian Hallels, the Psalms written to praise God for the Exodus. Each one is oriented around that historical event, the Exodus. We've already looked at Psalm 113. We're going to look now this morning at Psalm 114. Here again, the word of the Lord. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became a sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw and fled, Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back? O mountains that you skipped like rams? O little hills like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. Amen and amen. Well, in a cold winter night, I was sent back to the barn to fetch a gallon of milk. And I was not happy about it. It was cold. It was dark. It was a winter night. And I didn't want to leave the warmth and comfort of my house. I bundled up. I grabbed... Do anyone know those um, stainless steel metal milk jugs? If you don't, go up to my study after the worship service. I have one up there. I grabbed the stainless steel metal milk jug with the pop-top lid and the curved handle. And I went down to the barn. And I went into the milk house. And I fetched from the churning tank of milk a gallon of milk. Went back out into the cold, dark winter night and made my way down the ice-packed driveway to the house. Wouldn't you know it, I got to the last turn where you hang a left to go to the house, and my feet went out from under me, and the tin jug went down the driveway, spilling milk everywhere. I got up frustrated, and grabbed the jug and stormed my way back to the barn. I rinsed it off in the sink. I got my second gallon of milk, put the lid back on, and made my way back to the house. I got to the corner, and I went very gingerly up to the left side of the corner to avoid that slippery spot where I had fallen before, and fell again. The milk jug went rolling down the driveway to the edge of the woods, and I went after it. This time with tears of frustration running down my cheeks and hot anger boiling within me. I grabbed the jug and I returned to the barn and I rinsed it off and I filled it with milk and I stormed my way home and made it safely. I got to the back door and I burst through it in hot rage with frozen tears of rage on my cheeks. I passed into the warm yellow light of the kitchen where at once the smell of dinner rushed over me. My mom turned and smiled at me and thanked me for the gallon of milk, and all the fury melted away into a puddle on the floor. This is home. Home is the place 
where all the fury and the frustration melt away. What Christopher Lash called a haven in a heartless world. And my friends, we don't always find it here, do we? Home is something we here on earth taste, have samples of moment by moment. But our marriages, our children, our parents, our jobs, our world constantly violate this sense of home. Constantly rid us of this sense of safety and of peace. And it's within this environment, this homeless world through which we wander as orphans and aliens, that we begin to learn the truth of Psalm 114. Sorry, 14. That Jesus is our home. This is the good news for us this morning. This is the gospel truth to which we must cling this day, this week. Jesus is our home. So let's pray hallelujah. Because Jesus is our home, let's pray hallelujah. Think with me for a little while about this. Look at Psalm 114. Notice at the very beginning in verse 1, the psalm, like all the Egyptian Hillels, locates its reflection in the Exodus when Israel went out of Egypt. The historical event that this psalm is written for and about is that tremendous moment when God came to his people in in Egypt and broke the power of Pharaoh, delivering them from slavery and from bondage. That historical event is the wellspring of this psalm. So it is with us. My seminary professor of systematic theology would often say in class, theology is biography. What we believe grows out of who we are, of what we have experienced. This is true of the church of Jesus Christ. The church produces in its life loud hallelujahs because it has experienced the help of God, his salvation. Having actually tasted the goodness of God, we begin to say God is good. Out of the historical reality that is our salvation comes the personal experience of salvation. This is made very plain in the second line of the first verse. The house of Jacob from a people of strange language. The psalmist puts Israel and house of Jacob in parallel. That makes sense. Israel is the other name for Jacob. It means the descendants of this patriarch who have inherited through him these covenant promises of God's presence, of God's blessing. But Egypt, the psalmist calls a people of strange language. This is an unexpected parallel. You see, when we talk about Egypt, what do we always say? Bondage, slavery, oppression. But shockingly, oddly, the biggest problem down in Egypt wasn't slavery. It wasn't oppression. It was a strange language. That is most unexpected, isn't it? I mean, we would think that when you examine Israel's experience in Egypt, the thing that is most costly and most justifying of intervening salvation is like whips on the back. Is enslavement with no hope of freedom. But that's not what the psalmist calls Egypt. He doesn't identify them primarily by their oppression and their slavery. 
Perhaps even in our culture, we could add in this. Egypt is also not identified as the baby murdering capital of the ancient world. And yet they were taking all the male Hebrew babies and slaughtering them. You would think that would be the chief sin for which Egypt was identified and salvation justified. But no, ultimately God points through the psalmist to this peculiar statement. They speak a strange language. In other words, they do not say hallelujah. Is it a huge problem that they enslave others? Yes. Is it a huge problem that they murder babies? Yes. But the biggest problem of all is that they have strange language. They do not say hallelujah. They do not live to glorify and enjoy God, the chief end of all humans. Their murderous treatment of others, their corrupt genocidal intentions are an outflow of their refusal to glorify and enjoy God. Friends, this is a lesson for us. That the environment in which we learn and live and love is one corrupted first and foremost by an alienation from God. A strange language that doesn't say hallelujah. This is our chief problem in life. That we go to work and from 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, we never say hallelujah. Our chief problem in life is that we sit at home and we never say to our spouse hallelujah. Our chief problem in life is that we introduce alien language that is devoid of the glory and grace of God. And God means to fix that. God means to make of us a hallelujah people. He means to make of us a hallelujah church. And so we go out of Egypt. And so we leave the culture of strange language. And so we leave the kingdoms of this world. And we become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. How do we become a hallelujah people? How do we live a hallelujah life in which praising God, glorifying and enjoying God is the preeminent and central theme in our existence? Well, the psalmist gives us, as he did in Psalm 113, a five-step process. There's reasons that there are five-step processes. Primarily, it's because I'm trying to fit this in a 35-minute sermon, and if I do 25 minutes each for five of them, I get 25 minutes. See how that works? But these five steps flow out, each one, from the work of God, not the work of Israel. Notice in verse 2, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. God means to make of his people a community of hallelujah. He means for them to live in praise of him, glorifying and enjoying him. To accomplish this, he does two important things in the Exodus. He adopts them as a sanctuary and he possesses them as a dominion. Again, these two parallels represent his relationship to Israel with a nuance that is worth drawing out. A sanctuary is a safe place. It's a hiding place. It's a shelter. Judah, that royal tribe that led the people of Israel out of, Judah, out of Egypt, you remember when they arranged the tribes under Moses? They formed them in a plus shape or a cross shape. 
And in the middle is the tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant. And around it are the tribe of Levi and the priests. But at the northernmost point, the first tribe to rise up, pack up, and lead the procession is Judah. And for this reason, Judah, the royal tribe, is mentioned at the head of all Israel to become his sanctuary. His place where he dwells, the place where he feels comfortable. In contemporary language, we would call it our living room. The place where we feel most at home. God comes to his people. And he says, this is where I'm comfortable. This is where I'm at home in the world. This is where I am with you and you are with me. And we enter into a fellowship with God. But secondly, Israel is his dominion, meaning where he rules over them and exercises authority over them. I've told the story before, but when we were in high school, we would begin every school day with a pledge of allegiance, right hand on the heart, standing at attention, facing the American flag. And when the pledge of allegiance ended in the little Christian school that we went to, we would always say, and. I pledge my allegiance to America, and. I promise to live my life always in his presence, under his authority, and for his glory. This little covenant that Chapel Field taught us to pray every day matches Psalm 114, verse 2. That we are the people of God to dwell with him in his presence. We are his sanctuary, united to him where he loves to be, where he loves to dwell and rest and delights to be among us. Here's the scandalous truth. God loves this worship service more than you do. Here's the heartbreaking reality. God loves hearing you pray more than you love praying. Here's the tremendous truth. He loves your private devotions more than you do. You are his sanctuary. Not this place of stick and stone and of glass. This is what we call the church's building. We own it. We use it. We possess it. We can live without it. You, my friends, are his sanctuary. That's why we pray. Hallelujah. Because he lives with us. He dwells in us. We're his home here on earth. He doesn't pick the palaces of Versailles. He doesn't pick the White House and Pennsylvania Avenue. He picks people like you and me. And he makes a home here with us. But he also rules over us. When he dwells with us, he dwells with us as a king. He extends his royal authority and takes command over us. We are his dominion. The place where he rules. We are not only in his presence, we are under his authority. And by these steps, we come to living for his glory. How do we live for the glory of God? How do we live, hallelujah, by living in his presence and under his authority? By living with him and living under him. By being his sanctuary and his dominion. Having thus been united to God, come into what we call covenant with God. In this loving relationship in which we're united to God as his sanctuary and dominion, the psalmist then recounts how in the Exodus, this union of God and Israel had a profound effect on the creation. The sea saw it and fled. The Jordan turned back. 
The mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. This poetry is some of my favorite in all of scripture. In fact, when I was a geeky young seminarian and forced to do an Old Testament, an exegesis paper for seminary to prove that I was allowed to be in the pulpit, this is the psalm I did it on. So what you're actually hearing is about 20-year-old exegesis that's been updated over the years. But my exegesis paper, Tom, that I submitted to the Presbytery was on Psalm 114. Because I love this poetry. Look at this poetry. The sea saw and fled. This is a reference to the Red Sea. Israel comes up out of Egypt. They're trapped between certain death and certain death. The Egyptian army is behind them. The Red Sea is in front of them. This is not an aquatic culture. Nobody here swims. To cross the Red Sea is certain death. To remain on its shore, pinned in by the Egyptian army, is certain death. Here's the reality. Exodus 14. They're going to die. But they don't die. Because God shows up. He adopts them as a sanctuary. He extends his royal authority over them as his dominion. And as a sanctuary for them, he chases the sea away. The sea parts. And they go through certain death safely. Likewise, at the end of the Exodus experience, they come to the banks of the Jordan. And there the Jordan turns back. Just as it had at the Red Sea. We may recall from 1 Corinthians chapter 10... The Apostle Paul told us that when they crossed the Red Sea, it was a baptism into Moses. But there is no New Testament reference that says that the Jordan was a baptism into into Joshua. Why is that? Because we're only baptized once. The second time is death. What was inaugurated in their Mosaic baptism in the Red Sea was consummated in their crossing of the Jordan into the land of Canaan. So it is with us. My friends, we have a God who dwells with us and rules over us. And in the waters of baptism, he has begun a death completed when we die. A death through which we pass safely. How many of you drowned in your baptism? Then if you by faith... Walk with Christ, you will not drown in your death either. As surely as you made it safely through the waters of baptism, that sign and seal of death in Christ. So too it is a sign and seal of our future resurrection in Christ. What was begun in the sea is completed in the Jordan. There is a new nation that has come out of Egypt. It is birthed through this baptism into the sea and into the Jordan. Friends, death is for us swallowed up in victory. This is why we pray hallelujah. The mountains skip like rams, the little hills like lambs. This is between the sea and the Jordan. It comes in the middle. It's Mount Sinai. Where the people of Israel camped around it and God descended upon it. And the weight of his glory caused it to skip like rams and like lambs. The glory of his presence was so heavy upon it that the mountains shook tremendously with fear and with dread. These mountains and these hills were where God came and gave the law. That law of condemnation that crushes kingdoms beneath it and bears our souls down. We might say it theologically this way. Verse 3 establishes that we are trapped by certain death. Verse 4 establishes that we're deserving of it. 
We are surrounded by waters of death, the sea and the Jordan, and sadly we deserve to die. For there in the midst of these waters of death, we the people of God dwell in the presence of a holy God who doesn't need to save us. And when he speaks in Mount Sinai, the rocks quake and crack under the weight of his glory as the law comes down upon him. Do you remember Moses came down the mountain holding the rocks carved with the finger of God in the law? What's the first thing Moses does with those beautiful tablets? He throws them on the ground and breaks them. The finger of God had carved that law and the flame of his holiness had not yet cooled. And already the stones were shattered on the face of the mountain. For we deserve to die. For all the kingdoms of this world deserve to die. We skip like rams, we tremble like lambs. We flee with terror. For God is a holy God and we deserve to die. A hallelujah life is born when we grasp the certainty of our death and the undeservedness of our salvation. That when we look upon the waters of the Jordan and the Red Sea and say, I will perish. And when we look upon the shaking of Mount Sinai and say, and I deserve it. And I ought to perish. It is then that the hallelujah begins to rumble deep within our souls. When we grasp, but what ails you, O sea, that you flee? Verse 5, O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O little hills, like lambs. Having led the people of God to understand that death is certain and deserved, the psalmist then explains this extraordinary experience. The waters that are in perpetual motion stop, and the mountains which never move start. There's this incredible reversal of the nature's experience. What ails them? What affects them and infects them? What is it that brings about this transformation of water, something that is perpetually in motion and makes it run away? I mean, how many times... Have you guys seen the ocean tide not come in? It always comes in. How many of you have seen a springtime river in flood? How many of you have tried to cross it? There's no stopping it. There's this extraordinary experience that we have in this great industrial age where we have built all these giant citadels of strength and we've held back the rivers. And every time it floods, the dam breaks. Why? Because when God says the water is going to flow, the water is going to flow. But not this time. Water which cannot be stopped is stopped. Death which cannot be stopped is stopped. The grave which cannot be robbed is robbed. The mountains and the little hills which cannot be moved are in terror. And skipping like rams and like lambs. What ails you? What has infected death and rendered it powerless? What has infected the powers of this world and made them weak? 
What has torn down the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of Satan most of all? What ails you? What is it? Verse 7, we get our answer. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. A hallelujah life is coming forth from the presence of the Lord, the presence of the God of Jacob. He's brought them out of the strange language, the language that doesn't say hallelujah. He's caused them to say hallelujah by dwelling with them and over them. So that the creation itself beholds it and responds with terror. In fact, in verse 7, this terror is summed up in the word tremble. Tremble, rocks and waters. Tremble, for Israel is walking about the wilderness with God among them. Israel is a walking Emmanuel. God is with him. So earth, tremble. But this word tremble in verse 7 doesn't simply refer to the fear and terror that has seized the seas and overcome the mountains. No, this word tremble is rich, powerful in its metaphor. It is indeed the climax of this metaphor. It is the word used in Hebrew for a woman in labor. That moment. When a woman's soul is most intensely and acutely filled with fear. When her body is racked and writhing with pain. And she begins to shake violently. Have you seen it? Have you felt it? Fear within, pain all about. The psalmist turns to the earth and says... Rise like a woman in labor. Tremble like a woman about to give birth. The presence of the Lord is here with Israel and Jacob. And the hour of birth has now come. The Apostle Paul will grab this language in Romans chapter 8. And he will say, do you not know that the creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth? Longing for the appearing and the revealing of the sons of God. This is what Psalm 114 is seeing in the Exodus. It's the birth of Israel. It's the birth of the people of God. It's the birth of the presence of God. God with us. God over us and among us. Here comes the baby. Up out of Egypt. God has called his son. My friends, this world of sin and sorrow in which we live is giving birth. This barren woman, as we read about in Psalm 113, is here giving birth. This life of sin and misery is giving birth to a life of grace and glory. These sorrows here are giving birth to the glories there. This world is passing away, and out of its death and its shadows is emerging the light of the world that is to come And so we pray with the psalmist, tremble, O earth. Go ahead, writhe and give birth to the new heavens and the new earth. Give birth to the new humanity in Christ Jesus. For he himself is the one dreamt of in this psalm. Last picture, verse 8. He turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. The psalmist here recounts that experience in the wilderness where the people of God 
reached their worst. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They longed for slavery. They longed for the living death that was there in Egypt. They longed for the comforts and consolations of a society that did not say, Hallelujah. And the Lord said, I have an answer for this. I have a solution for a community of humans who are so intoxicated with this wicked world and all of its fictitious and entirely unsatisfying desires. I'll give them a rock. I'll give them a rock from which water pours. Do you guys see the coolness of the metaphor? This is a master poet. He was talking about seas and rivers, you know, water. He was talking about mountains and hills, you know, rocks. He's put the metaphor together. That water through which they passed, that was the death of Christ. That mountain by which they passed, that law that thundered their condemnation, that was the righteousness of Christ imputed to them by faith. In all these images of death and of destruction and of condemnation, the psalmist is holding out to the church of Jesus Christ a picture of Christ and of his salvation. He is the rock. I love Paul's language in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And the rock that followed them was Christ. It's not a random rock in the desert. It's not just a piece of granite. It's a rock that represented to the people of God, Jesus. He had a name and his name was Christ. And you know what else? The rock followed them around. What makes you say hallelujah in the workplace? Realizing that Jesus has followed you to the office. Realizing that Jesus is the rock on which this congregation stands. The rock on which the kingdom is secure. Realizing that from that rock, that unshakable rock, that all the mountains and hills of this world will crumble under the law of God. There is no kingdom of this world that has not fallen except the kingdom of Christ. That rock that stands firm forever. From that rock comes a pool of water, a fountain of water. I like your prayer request. We need rain. There's only one pool, one spring, one fountain in this planet that will not one day run dry. It is Christ. I know it's been a dreadfully, wonderfully fertile continent, this American expanse. But for 400 years, we've abused the daylights out of it. And I don't know how much, much longer God's going to let us have it. He loves his creation. And he is jealous for her. And he is not here to birth America, but the church. He is here to father a people who will rest on the rock, which is Christ, who will drink from a pool that is Christ, so that streams of living water will well up within them, as Christ promised on that great day of the feast.
in John's Gospel. Friends, when Israel went up out of Egypt, God adopted them as his home. And said, while you walk on this earth, I will live with you. I will cover you like a roof. I will comfort you like a couch. I will uphold you like a rock. And I will be your home. And when you come to leave this earth, I will make this tent in which you have tasted my hospitality a permanent palace. And you will dwell with me forever. The rock that followed them through the wilderness, the stream of living water that flowed into the wilderness, can be found in John's vision in Revelation. It's there in glory. And there are trees growing up on both sides of it. Because there's no wilderness in heaven. Just promised land. Friends, this is how we live the hallelujah life. With our roots sunk deep into the waters of Christ. With our feet firmly planted on the rock of Christ. I know I'm mixing metaphors, but the psalmist did it first. I'm just copying him. Friends, this is the riches of the gospel according to Psalm 114. Jesus is your home. Jesus is where you thrive and where you flourish and where you blossom. Jesus is your home. So let's pray hallelujah. So let's pray hallelujah. Please pray with me now. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful psalm. For all of its treasures and its riches. For especially the Christ that is here presented so beautifully. We give you thanks, O God, that out of these lives here on earth, you are making a life worth living for all eternity. We thank you that you are doing it through your Son and Spirit, that we might walk with you, live in you, die with you, and be raised evermore with you. Father, forgive us that the weight of this world, that the proximity of our sin, that the intensity of our sufferings blinds us from the reality that you are there and that you are here. You are ruling over us and dwelling with us. But we pray, O oh God, that as you have made this now plain to us, that you would stir up in our hearts a sweet joy and a faithful, humble obedience to practice what we here have preached and to pray, hallelujah, praise the Lord, he's done it all. We give you thanks in your name, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and ask these things in his name, amen.